So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water that gushing up to the life of the age to come. Jesus said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more? Then come the, comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for the life of the age to come so that sower and reaper may rejoice together, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done.
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. May this be to us the word of the Lord. Hello and welcome to the Lectio Cascadia podcast. My name is Brandon Rhodes, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you as always to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the music, which ran out the clock. That's how long this reading was, I think. Um, yeah, let me look at my timer here. Yep, we're past. Um, that was a long reading. Um, second thing to acknowledge, I know, I know, my last episode, I like did a cold open just to communicate in, to you uh, how I was going to get back into this in a timely manner. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're like most of the world, you got nothing but time on your hands this week. So, yeah. Um, I feel okay about the schedule shift. Uh, it was important to be with family in the times that we're in, you know? Here we are. At the start of the second week in the United States and many other countries in which life has drastically changed um, in response to the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Just about everything is shutting down. For the weeks ahead, many of us are staying home for as much of as many days as possible. No sports, no Disney parks, no live audiences for Colbert or for political debates, no toilet paper on the shelves. It's a crazy time. We're learning a whole hell of a lot about, well, hand washing and social distancing and how soap breaks lipids that hold the virus itself together and flattening the curve, herd immunity, quarantining, what else? Uh, Well, you know, even how to endure a toilet paper shortage. Side note, buy futures of companies that make bidets. (laughs) Um, We're also learning uh, false ways of responding to this crisis. We're going out. People who think, hey, you can go out because I'm not part of an at-risk population or... All the pseudoscience promises of vitamin C or garlic or colloidal silver or essential oils that can stop this um, are face masks that have very limited use. That's like the least bad one on that list. And then you can interject into all of this, those appropriate and dubious responses, all those appropriate and dubious responses, you can interject among them all just the foibles and shadows of the human condition that are surfacing because of this. Individualism, narcissistic leaders, racist blame games, corrupt politicians, arrogantly confusing, behaving like a public menace with being somehow brave. We're learning about hoarding and hustling what has been hoarded. The whole gamut. Gamut? Gamut? The whole gamut. (laughs) Uh, The good, the dumb, the dangerous. It's part of how humanity has always responded to impurities. Social interpretations 
of what's happening and social biases get mingled with good hygiene and get mingled with political pissing matches and get mingled with violently blaming specific people groups for what's going on. Yeah, purity beliefs and and behaviors are super interesting. One book called Unclean uh, by this guy Richard Beck it's honestly one of the most important books I've ever read. I'm going to need to reread it. Uh, hmm. I guess I'll have time for it soon. Um, seriously, read it. Uh, Unclean by Richard Beck. I, I'll put it in the show notes. He talks about the psychology of purity. Uh, of one fundamental tenet of it is like the way every human understands purity before we have a word for it is it's about keeping the good in and the bad out of our body it's about boundary preservation and boundary violation and boundary repair how do we clean and atone that which has been ruptured but really that it it begins with that bodily in out uh good in bad out thing so for example this is going to get weird. Uh, spit in your mouth is fine, but out of your mouth it's bad. So you can, you know, French kiss your partner. We call it swapping spit. That'd be fine. But you'd be revolted if your partner, well, maybe you would be. <laughs> I think it's typical. Uh, that you'd be revolted if they spat in a cup and then hoped to drip it into your mouth. Right? I ain't going to kink shame, but, you know, that's kind of a default weird revulsion line. Uh, but the nerds on purity say that's just kind of the fundamental metaphor for it. Good stays in the body and bad stays out of the body. And importantly, we expel or vomit out and then tidy up after we've eliminated, vomited out the contaminants. Then there's all these like other rules about purity, like we like avoiding contact with the impure. Um, or like what well, you know maybe you've heard of one called oh that uh there's there's one called negativity dominance that's where even like a tiny amount of something impure can contaminate the whole batch a little bit of something something bad permanently corrupts the whole thing it doesn't have to be rational scientific or logical it's just how it goes. So, example, the water reservoirs on the volcano up the street from me. Uh, someone peed in it a few years back, and the city, like, drained millions of gallons of water out of it. It's not used anymore. Because, <laughs> maybe in part because of the story, they're now decorative reservoirs. But, yeah, one guy peed in it, and they drained millions of gallons because of it. Because that, you know bladder of pee impurifies millions of gallons like a medium-sized pond um the water was like fine 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 to drink like you know birds were shitting in it and floating in it like full qualaka immersion right is going on in the water but this guy's pee and we've 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 agreed Negativity dominance. We couldn't stomach the idea of somewhere in our glass of tap water where a few atoms of that drunk dude's pee. 
That's, so that's negativity dominance from Richard Beck's book, Unclean. Now, where it gets way more interesting and more to the point of that really long story I read um, is how things play out socially. See, some of these bodily metaphors for impurity actually level up into how we understand um, preservation of boundaries socially and impurities, allegedly, socially. We believe that some kinds of people or committers of certain activities corrupt the whole group. They have a certain negativity dominance. They're a fundamental threat to the fabric of society. So if we let one gay person be in our religious group, it'll render the whole huddle unclean. That's negativity dominance, writ social. Groups that like, like that um, then vomit out, often violently, the queer person or the scientist or the meat eater or the vegetarian or the Biden voter or the Bernie voter or the Jew or the Muslim or the atheist or take your pick. On it goes. The undocumented, right? Um, we think our tribal purity is wrecked if we have one of them here with us. Talking a different way, being different. Loving, different. And so there's a violence of expelling that we believe is necessary for us to know that we're clean again. Do you see it? Our bodily purity instincts translate terribly into social attitudes and pol political imaginations. It's like if social distancing stuck, <laughs> if it's stuck, and we believed in a year from now, if we believed anyone who stepped within six feet of us is a rat bastard, and then we develop like religious rituals and convictions around social distancing for that one thing. It's like, that's kind of how this whole thing goes. Um, these dynamics are all over the collection of stories about Jesus. His tribe had plenty of social purity codes, plenty of beliefs about negativity dominance, plenty about expelling the impurifying agents and everything else you read about in Beck's book, Unclean, again, in the show notes. Uh, in this week's story, we see Jesus rupturing these cleanliness and purity codes in a few ways. First, he's asking for water from the wrong kind of person. The woman at the well is from an ethnic group, kind of splintered off from like his Jesus's tribe few hundred years earlier, but they like totally understood themselves to be the true heirs of that original tradition. Like, I'm not the branch that fell off, you are. <laughs> uh, and all the holy places and holy customs and holy promises and holy prophecies, uh, they were up in their neck of the woods, not his. So these two groups resented each other, Jews and Samaritans, particularly Jesus's tribe to theirs. They both thought of each other as filthy apostates or heretics or traitors or ethnic degenerates or something. Um, it's like a weird, uh, to us anyway, a weird blend of all those things. And so Jesus asks this impure person, quote unquote, this kind of person we don't talk to or touch because of negativity dominance, because of boundary preservation, he asks her to draw water. 
for him to touch what goes into his body. He's refusing to let purity, superstition, and bigotry set the terms by literally taking the impurities into himself. And in doing this, Jesus creates a new way forward. Now the story goes on. Immediately, those fresh futures are on the scene. She asks for water from him and is open to the possibility he's like some kind of prophet. So she's willing to receive... So already at this point, she's willing to receive the holy from what her tribe would say is an unholy person, one of those apostates. She's willing to buck the trend of purity code. She stays engaged in this moment with Christ. So the conversation turns to her sexual history. She's been married five times or slept with five men or yeah it's a scandal in a religiously fastidious society like she's excluded from the people that christ excluded um or sorry christ's tribe excluded so the story emphasizes her astonishment that he magically knew her backstory but as always and always in these stories look for the deeper magic and it's this that he's asking for water from not only a despised religious and ethnic group, he's asking for water from someone thought to be sexually impure. So he's taking on... So, yeah, check this out. In this one interaction with this one woman from a different tribe and a dubious sexual background at a well outside of his country... He is taking on racism, religious bigotry, regional bigotry, sex negativity, and misogyny in like one act. Jesus will bring into himself what, according to his tribe, impurifies them. This is like an act of intersectional defiance. Is that, is that a thing? It should be. Because uh, Jesus is breaking all the damn purity exclusion codes. Uh, Jesus is, at this point, Jesus' crew slides in, freaks out that he's hanging with a woman. <laughs> so they record scratch in the wrong direction. He, she's open, open-minded and trusting and accommodating and is biddable. They're like, oh my God, a lady. Uh, and one thing leads to another, and her wide-eyed glee in the village, talking about her conversation with Jesus, uh, leads to Jesus and the gang all rolling down into town. and. That town's bigotry is melted as they open-handedly consider that their deepest hopes may be coming from outside what they believed to be of the divine. See, they had the same bigotries just flipped the other way. That Jesus, that Jesus' tribe of origin were the apostates and all that. On then it goes. And here they are, seeing that the divine may be coloring outside their box— and how do they respond? They extend hospitality to Jesus in their homes and hearts for two days. Where once there was defiling and corruption and alienation and aggression, now there is belonging, new possibilities, fresh 
futures. It's what Beck calls Jesus's capacity for um, positivity dominance instead of negativity dominance. See, a little Jesus of the true presence of Jesus and all other alleged impurities are overcome. Any pee in the reservoir of your little huddle is challenged and overcome by Jesus. That's the work of the divine in the world. The spring of water welling up to the life of God's new age. A Jesus-resonant kind of humanity whose positivity dominance overcomes all alienations and exclusions. Resolves all impurities. With love, hospitality, touch, and solidarity. May your week ahead be filled with curiosity and wonder, gratitude and laughter, courage and presence, and may the peace of Christ be with you. Mm-hmm.